Anyway, Matthew chapter 16. We're going to get to work tonight. We've got a couple of chapters to work through. Father, thank you for your great love for us. Lord, we find such, such keys to life in your word. We find such help. Lord, we, we don't know what we would do, Lord, without your words. They're words of life and words of love. Lord, we come to know you through the pages of Scripture. So once again, Lord, we have such profound passages tonight, and we feel so uh, inadequate to deliver these truths. That's why I ask tonight, Lord, that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon us, upon me, as I attempt to teach through these chapters, and that you'd make your word clear and plain powerful, and that you, Lord, the Holy Spirit, would be our teacher. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, political campaigns have them. So do wars. So do stock car races. So do business careers. So do romances. Even baseball and football games have them. They're called turning points. A presidential hopeful makes a slip of the tongue. Or a skillful driver enters into a turn and slips under the leader. Or a young salesman lands a giant account. At the time, you don't realize it. But years later, you look back on that moment. And you see that that was where the momentum shifted. That's where the focus changed. That was the turning point. Well, chapter 16 of Matthew and 17 is the turning point in the ministry of Jesus. Think of his ministry this way. There were two semesters in Jesus' school of discipleship. In semester one, the disciples learned Jesus' identity. His identity. In semester two, they learned his destiny. You see, up through chapter 15, the point of Jesus' miracles and his teachings is to spotlight who he is, that he is the Christ. But from chapter 17 until the end of his ministry, the emphasis is on where he is going, the cross. Identity, then destiny. The Christ, then the cross. Chapter 16 and 17 marks the turning point between those two semesters of teaching and discipleship. It begins in verse 1. Then the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and testing him, asked that he should show them a sign from heaven. Oh, Pharisees and Sadducees, what a combination. I mean, this is like the Republicans and the Democrats, like the liberals and the conservatives, like Rush Limbaugh and Nancy Pelosi joining forces. Here is Hannity and Hillary coming together and approaching Jesus. It's interesting, each of these groups believed that the problem with the nation was the other. The only cause powerful enough to bring these two opposing factions together was their hatred of Jesus. And now they come questioning His authority, asking for a sign. Notice they ask for a sign from heaven. The rabbis taught that demons could perform miracles on earth, but only God could perform miracles in heaven. And so they ask for a sign from heaven. And Jesus answered and said to them, When it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be foul weather today, for the sky is red and threatening. Hypocrites! You know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. He's saying, you Jews, you don't need Kurt Mellish to know what the day's going to hold. 
I mean, the sky gives it away. A colorful sunset means fair weather. A colorful sunrise signals a storm is on the horizon. When it came to weather, the Jews were pretty perceptive. But when it came to spiritual realities, a raindrop can smack them right in the forehead and they wouldn't know it was raining. Spiritually speaking, these Jews were dense. Jesus had demonstrated over and over His power. His power over disease. His power over demons. His power over nature. His power over sin. Oh my! He had even proven that He could manipulate the molecular structure of fish and bread. There was no other conclusion. But this man was God. And yet because Jesus didn't come from their schools, and because He didn't honor their traditions, and because He refused to bow to their authority. They rejected the obvious. Rather than the Son of God, they called Him a blasphemer. And this from a people known as the people of the book. I mean, the Jews were supposed to be guided by Scripture, yet they had ignored the prophecies and the descriptions of the Old Testament of Jesus. The Old Testament had talked about Jesus' birth and His nature and His ministry and even His miracles. In the volume of the book, it's written of me, Jesus says. But the Jews refused to read the book in regards to Jesus. Pride. And pride can be a steel trap. Pride had closed their minds. Well, in verse 4, Jesus says, A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign shall be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. The sign Jesus explains Uh, He mentions here, he explained back in chapter 12, verse 40, the sign of the prophet Jonah. Remember what he said there in chapter 12. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. You you remember our studies in Jonah back uh, before Christmas. In Jonah 2, verse 2, there the prophet had cried out from the gullet of that great fish. He had said, out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. Sheol, or Hades, the New Testament uh, term, was actually the abode of the dead before the time of Christ. The question becomes, did Jonah literally die, go to Sheol, and then rise from the dead to be spit out on the shore? Or did he just feel like hell in the stomach of that fish? We're not sure. But just as Jonah was 72 hours in the fish's belly, Jesus spent three days and three nights in Sheol. He was preaching to the Old Testament saints who were kept there. You know, today when a believer dies, they go straight to heaven. Do not pass go, do not collect $200. I mean, when you die, you know Jesus, you go straight into the presence of God. But in Old Testament times, Jesus had not yet opened the door to heaven. And so believers went to this place called Hades. Now, Hades, or Sheol, is a spiritual place. And it's located in a different dimension that apparently somehow overlaps the center of the earth, for that's where Jesus locates it. In a few verses, Jesus is going to use the phrase, the gates of hell, or the gates of Hades. Could these gates be portals around the globe where the spirits of men transfer from the physical into the spiritual realm. I think that perhaps places like the Bermuda Triangle and the Devil's Triangle and other places around the globe could very well be the gates of hell. Could be these time warps between these two dimensions. It's possible. Well, Jesus, uh, Jonah was in the sea. 
He was in a fish for three days. And then he reappeared. Well, likewise, Jesus was under the sea in Sheol for three days. And then he reappeared at his resurrection. Other men have done miracles. But Jesus is the only person who was dead and was resurrected never to die again. And this is the sign that sets him apart. The sign of the prophet Jonah pointed to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Jesus is saying to the Jews here, if you don't believe in my resurrection, nothing else is going to convince you. He says, and he left them and departed. And now when his disciples had come to the other side, they had forgotten to take bread. Oh no, we forgot lunch. And then Jesus said to them, take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, throughout the scriptures, you remember, leaven is a type of sin. It's the perfect type of sin because leaven or yeast does what sin does. It corrupts by puffing up. The same is true with sin. What does it do? It inflates our ego. It puffs us up. Never forget, at the heart of sin, S-I-N, is the word letter I. You got it. The leaven of the Pharisees was legalism. The sin of the Sadducees was liberalism. And Jesus is warning his disciples to beware of both. But the disciples, you see, they didn't get the message. And they reasoned among themselves saying, it is because we have taken no bread. In other words, they, they thought he meant literal bread. Now here was a reoccurring problem. Jesus, understand this, this is very important. Jesus viewed the world, the physical world, as a window. And you miss a window's purpose if you look at it. You don't look at a window. You look through a window at what's on the other side. Jesus saw the tangible world, the physical world we live in, as a window through which we could look and see spiritual realities, eternal realities. You remember when Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. Nicodemus didn't get it, did he? He turned to Jesus and he said, Hey, how can I go into my mother's womb and be born a second time? I mean, how can that happen? He didn't, he didn't get it. When Jesus offered the Samaritan woman a drink of living water, the kind of which you will never thirst again once you drink it, she thought, well, Where do you go to draw this kind of water? What, what well do you, where, which well do you find this kind of water? Again, she didn't get it. In John 6, when Jesus said, Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. You know, we're told that his disciples took him literally. They had no discernment into spiritual things. And his comment actually creeped them out. Eat your flesh and drink your blood. And they decided they would no longer follow him. Many of them did. You see, to Jesus, physical life was a window through which we can peer through. It's an allegory, it's an analogy through which we can peer through and learn spiritual truths and eternal realities. Now here Jesus knows that his disciples didn't understand what he had meant by the leaven. And so in verse 8, But Jesus, being aware of it, said to them, O you of little faith, why do you reason among yourselves because you have brought no bread? Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves of the 5,000 and how many baskets you took up? Nor the seven loaves of the 4,000 and how many large baskets you took up? <laughs> Why would Jesus be concerned with a bread shortage? I mean, he'd already proven. I mean, two miracles of multiplication. No bread would be the least of his worries. 
Here's an important lesson, lesson for us. The reason people have a hard time gazing through the window, looking past the physical to the spiritual realities beyond them, the reason that's hard for us, it's because of our lack of faith. You see, we stay fixated on the physical because we don't trust God to provide our physical needs and to take care of our daily bread. When I trust God for my daily bread, then I can feed on spiritual bread. But if I'm always worried about where my daily bread's going to come from, I never look past it to what's beyond. Jesus says in verse 11, How is it you do not understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread? but to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and Sadducees. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, Caesarea Philippi was built by Herod Philip, about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee, up in the elevated area known as the Golan Heights. There was an original city called Panias, named after the Greek god of Pan. Herod renamed the, the, uh, renamed the city after Caesar and after himself, Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi sat on the southern slope of Mount Hermon, about 1,150 feet above sea level. It was one of the Decapolis, the ten cities, the ten Gentile cities on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. Basically, when he and his disciples went up to the Caesarea Philippi, this was a retreat. Jesus was taking his disciples now on a retreat. The Golan, for one thing, was cooler than the Galilee. The area around Caesarea Philippi was a rural area. It was wooded. It was secluded. This is a turning point in the ministry of Jesus. And he wants his closest followers full attention. And so he takes them to this remote location for a retreat. Now Jesus asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? It's test time. First semester is over. It's time for the exam. Up until now, the emphasis in Jesus' ministry has been on his identity. What do people say about me? And so they said, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And in ways, Jesus resembled each of these heroes of the faith. Like John, Jesus called people to repentance. Like Elijah, Jesus worked miracles. Like Jeremiah, he was tenderhearted in compassion and wept for the people. Like the prophets, he rose up and spoke for God. But then Jesus asked them an important question. But who do you say that I am? Not, not who do others say that I am. We, we've gone over that. But who do you say that I am? Matilda Crabtree was a 14-year-old student from West Monroe, Louisiana. And Matilda had a habit of cutting up with her father. She loved to play practical jokes with her dad. She would try to scare him. And at times, he in turn would try to scare her. But one no November night, Matilda performed one too many of her pranks. She told her mom and dad that she was sleeping over at a friend's house. Instead, though, she stayed home that night, and she hid in her parents' closet. In the middle of the night, she started making scary noises. Her dad jumped out of bed and grabbed his three fifty-seven caliber pistol. And when he opened the closet and Matilda yelled, Boo, 
Her frightened father shot her in the neck. Her daughter's final words before she died were, Daddy, I love you. Here is the moral of the story. Sometimes a case of mistaken identity can turn tragic and lethal. And here is another example in our text. The wrong answer to Jesus' question may not, will not only cost you your life, friend, it will cost you your eternity. For Jesus asks each one of us this important question. Who do you say that I am? Not who do men say that I am. Not who does your spouse say that I am. Not who does your mom say that I am. Not who does the pastor say that I am. Here is the most important question you'll ever be asked. You can't sidestep it. You can't dodge or escape this question. It demands, it requires your answer. Your eternal destiny rides on your answer to this question. Jesus asks you tonight, Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, and he said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. The word Christ is the English translation of the Hebrew Messiah. Peter hits the nail on the head. Jesus, you're the Savior and the King. You're God's chosen deliverer. You're the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter, you get A+. You pass the test with flying colors. Add Peter to the honor roll. At least for four verses. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, or son of Jonah. For flesh and blood had not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I want you to understand this. Peter didn't realize that his thoughts had actually been inspired by God. I mean, Peter thought he was just stating the obvious. He was just sort of putting two and two together. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Who else could you be? And yet Jesus recognizes his answer as a direct revelation from God. Peter's getting heavy revies. And he don't even know it. You know, here's what's interesting. Sometimes supernatural stuff happens in very natural ways. And we don't even know it's happened until after the fact. You know, God works in, in sometimes some very inconspicuous, very subtle ways. You know, one morning, something tripped my neighbor's alarm next door, her burglar alarm. And I w walked outside to inspect. I heard this noise going on, and I kept hearing this automated voice screeching over and over again. Burglary, burglary, burglary. You're in a restricted area. Please leave immediately. Burglary, burglary, burglary. I mean, the alarm was blasting all over the neighborhood. And it got me thinking, you know, when we first become Christians, we think this is how God speaks to us. He barks and he blasts orders from heaven. We start to sin and suddenly a voice pierces the heavens. You're in a restricted area. Please leave immediately. Sorry, God doesn't speak that way, at least not often. Most often, his thoughts penetrate my thoughts. He comes into my life and he steers my mind in the direction that he knows is right. A light shines on a truth that I've forgotten. Or I see a truth in a new way, in a new application. It happens so naturally at times. It happens so naturally that I'm tempted to think that it's me. But in reality, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Jesus says, and I'll also say to you that you are Peter. 
And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Now here Jesus uses two words that are linguistically related to each other. The word Peter and rock are from the same root word, but they're in different genders, which changes their meaning. Peter is Petros, which is in the masculine form. It means a little rock or a pebble. Whereas rock is Petra, which is feminine. It refers to a mountain face, to a big cliff, to an El Capitan. Ever had a conversation with a friend and you recount it to a third party? And outside of the context, that conversation really make, doesn't make sense. And so you end up kind of saying at the end of your conversation, well, you just had to be there. You ever done that? Well, in a sense, this is what Jesus, what we could say about Jesus' conversation with Peter. It really helps if you had been there. Imagine Caesarea Philippi in your mind. There's this clear spring that kind of bubbles up right in the midst of, surrounded by a bunch of silver poplar trees all around it. It's really beautiful. And this little spring bubbles up under this big, massive, reddish rock, a cliff. Jesus, there we go. Can we see the cliff? There's the little spring. And there's the big cliff. And at one time, that little spring bubbled up right under that cliff. It's beautiful. Now, now catch the picture. Jesus picks up a pebble out of that brook. And he says to Simon, From now on, Simon, you're going to be Petros. You're going to be a little pebble. But then he points north, right over his shoulder, at this big massive cliff. And then he says, and on this Petra, I'm going to build my church. Peter is the pebble. Jesus is the mountain. Jesus promises to build his church, not on Peter, but on Peter's confession. You're the Christ, the son of the living God. And the disciples, they grasp this imagery. Throughout the Old Testament, Messiah is pictured as a rock, as the cornerstone, as the stone that hits the image in the legs and it crumbles and it becomes a massive mountain. The kingdom of God is created by this stone that hits the kingdoms of this world. Peter the pebble will be a leader in the church, a representative of Jesus, but in essence, he's just a chip off the block. Jesus himself is the block. Jesus is the foundation stone on which the church will be built. There is a principle in the Bible, a principle of Bible interpretation, known as the law of first mention. In other words, the law states that where a subject is mentioned the first time, you find crucial understandings about that subject. And here is the first reference in the scriptures of the church. Jesus says, I will build my church in the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And here we learn three important truths about the church. Notice first, Jesus bought the church. I will build my church. It belongs to him. He bought the church. Second, Jesus builds the church. And third, Jesus does battle through the church. Jesus bought the church. I hope you understand this church is not my church. It's not the pastor's church. It's not the people's church. It's not your church. This church is Jesus' church. Jesus has purchased the church with his precious blood. And Jesus builds the church. 
Now you can go to church growth seminars today and you'll find lots of people with clever ideas for attracting a crowd. But only Jesus can build a church with muscle and maturity. As God told another would-be temple builder, a man named Zerubbabel, he said, it's not by might or by power, but it's by my spirit. That's how the church is built. Jesus builds his church. And if we'll be the church, if we'll worship and live the Bible and pray and love each other, Jesus promises to build the church. This is the strategy in the book of Acts. And it certainly worked. Finally, Jesus does battle through the church. Notice the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And don't miss this. A gate is a defensive fortification. You, you never heard it. Well, I got hit by the gate. The gate mowed me down. No, you, you don't attack with a gate. You defend with a gate. This is not hell attacking the church. No, no. This is the church taking the battle to hell. This is the church taking the battle to the forces of evil. The church shouldn't just simply sit back and defend itself. We should be the aggressor. We should go on the offensive. We should be on the attack against evil with good. Now in Panias, the original city, before Philip built Caesarea, there was a shrine to the Greek god Pan. Here sacrifices were made, and at this spot... It was called the gates of hell. So to the disciples at the time, the gates of hell represented the pagan culture of that area. The humanism and the hedonism of the Greeks. The church would be a new community living among this Greek culture. And Jesus is saying that rather than be overwhelmed by the surrounding Greek or Hellenistic culture, Christianity would grow and expand and Christianity would overcome the Greek culture with its own culture of love and culture of truth. Then Jesus says to Peter, And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Now Peter's got a new name. He's Rocky. And he's given a special role to spread the gospel. Jesus hands him the keys to the car, so to speak. The keys to the kingdom. And every time now that the gospel spreads to a new people group, first to the Jews, then to the Samaritans, then to the Gentiles, guess who is on hand to unlock the door? It's Peter. In Acts chapter 2, Peter preached and saw 3,000 Jews join the church in a single day. Pretty impressive. In Acts 8, he visits Samaria and he oversees the outreach among the Samaritans, the first church there in Samaria. And in Acts 10, it was Peter who preached to the Gentiles at Cornelius' house. And, at the, and for the very first time, the Holy Spirit was poured out on the Gentiles just as he had been poured out upon the Jews. At each time, Peter was there with the keys to open the kingdom. Now, Jesus also tells Peter, And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Binding and loosing are rabbinical terms. The priest, as God's representative, had the authority and the duty to apply the law to specific situations. Now, this occurs every day in American courtrooms. There are laws on the books, but those laws on the books have to be litigated, and they have to be practically applied to different cases. And this involves understanding the nuances and being able to make those applications. This also has to be done with spiritual principles. We have to take what's on the book, so to speak, 
And we have to apply it to the situation that we face. Folks need help from time to time in applying spiritual truth to their specific situation. And this is where the authority to bind and to loose becomes helpful. To bind means to restrict. To loose means to release. And Jesus here gives this authority to bind and loose, to restrict and to release to the twelve apostles. And as we'll see in chapter 18, to a lesser degree, to pastors and to church leaders today. And we'll talk about, more about how binding and loosing works when we get to chapter 18. Verse 20. Then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. Now it's not enough to know who Jesus is. That knowledge really does you no good unless you're willing to follow him to where he's headed. There are many people who know who Jesus is, but they're not headed where he's headed. This is why Jesus didn't want the masses to honor him as their Messiah. If they would have done so, they would have wanted a conquering Savior, not a crucified Savior. These fickle crowds were not prepared to let Jesus rule in their hearts. They wanted him to rule in Jerusalem. They wanted a political kingdom, not a spiritual kingdom. They knew they would agree with his identity, but they were in no way, shape, or form in agreement with his destiny. That was the problem. And this was not just true of the crowd's expectation. Sadly, this was also true of the disciples. They also knew who Jesus was. But they really didn't understand yet where he was going. And for the next year, Jesus tries to alter their expectations. This begins the second semester of their discipleship. And I might add, the harder semester. Now they know his identity but he's going to make sure they understand his destiny. And the next few verses show just how difficult this spiritual education is going to be for them. This is, a, this is a subject they're going to have a hard time getting. Just how entrenched their expectations were. Verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. And did Peter say, Oh Jesus, that was different than what we expected. Let me think that thing through a little bit. Oh, let me reconsider some of my assumptions. Was that Peter's reaction? Not hardly. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. Peter had just received a heavy revelation, a heavy revy. Here's a guy that gets heavy revies. But it's gone to his head. He is the prophet. He's the oracle of God now. I mean, he knows so much that he's going to straighten out Jesus. And so he pulls Jesus aside and he says, Oh no, that's not going to happen to you. No way, Jesus. Peter must have thought he was the Pope. Instead, he was just a dope. But he, Jesus, turned and said to Peter, Oh boy, talk about burst your bubble. Talk about a punch in the gut. Talk about a pop in the ego. Jesus said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me. For you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Oh my. 
Peter goes from revelation to devastation in a matter of minutes. You know, it's funny. Just because God uses you profoundly and speaks to you directly, it doesn't mean that you can't in the next sentence slip up and find yourself being manipulated by Satan himself. You can go from an instrument of God to a tool of Satan in just four verses. You know, when we're saved, God forgives us. And He puts His Spirit within us. But He does nothing to alter our humanness. That comes when we're raptured. We still think human thoughts, don't we? We're still influenced by human and often sinful perspectives. And it's not always easy to differentiate between God's thoughts and my thoughts. Or even worse, Satan's thoughts. And I hate to tell you, but there's no magical formula for knowing when it's God speaking or when it's some other voice. You, you get that discernment through time and through growth and through exposure to the mind and will and word of God. It takes the humbling of your heart with repentance. It takes the saturating of your mind with the word. It takes allowing the spirit to challenge and change every assumption about life. It's a process. This is why rocks need to remember they're nothing but solidified dirt. And notice one more point from our passage. Jesus identifies Peter's desire to prevent the cross as an idea inspired by Satan himself. Hey, this had been Satan's strategy from the Garden of Eden. Satan wanted to keep Jesus off of the cross. This is why he tried to kill Jesus with the sword of Herod while a baby in Bethlehem. This is why he tried to drown Jesus in the storm on the sea. This is why they tried to throw Jesus off the cliff there in Nazareth. This is why Satan used Judas to betray Jesus. You understand, no one needed Judas to identify Jesus. Satan used Judas because it was a dagger in Jesus' back. To, to be betrayed by his, one of his most trusted men. What would this do in Jesus' heart? It might tempt him to abandon the cross in the salvation it would bring. You see, unlike Peter, Jesus knew that he was destined for the cross, not the crown. And any thought otherwise, to bypass the cross, was a thought from Satan. Well, verse 24, Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. You know, there are scores of people today who would have agreed with Peter's confession. They believe that Jesus is the Messiah. The problem is they're not ready to follow him to the cross. They agree with his identity, but they haven't yet embraced his destiny. They want the Christ, but they're not so sure about the cross. And Jesus teaches his disciples that you can't have one without the other. To believe in Jesus is to take up your cross. Now the cross was a symbol of complete subjugation to the will of Rome. The Romans invented crucifixion, the horror of crucifixion, not because it was the most efficient means of execution. Oh no, there were cleaner, there were quicker, there were probably more inexpensive ways to crucify a person, to, to kill a victim than to crucify them. The cross, though, served a purpose. It was deliberately bloody and vicious and cruel and torturous. You see, the Romans used crucifixion to make a statement to the masses. The cr crucifixion was a statement. 
This is why crucifixions were always carried out by roadsides. Or they were carried out on a mountaintop near a road. Places where the victims would be seen publicly. The cross was a reminder. It was a reminder that despite whatever freedoms the Romans might have extended to their subjects for a time, at any moment those privileges could be pulled out from under them. That Roman authority was supreme and complete. That's what the cross was all about. In reality, no one had any more rights under Rome than that man hanging on the cross. Now Jesus says to follow him, it requires three steps. First, deny yourself. Stop being selfish. Stop just thinking about yourself. It's just not about you anymore. You, you got to deny yourself. Second, take up your cross. What does that mean? That means to submit to a new authority. To surrender my life to Jesus as if I were hanging on a cross. To give up all of my rights and privileges and say, Jesus, I belong to you. Just like the crucified person said, we belong to Rome. It's to, say, it's to take up your cross and say, I belong to you, Jesus. I surrender my life to you. And then third, to follow in Jesus' footsteps. To follow Jesus. To think and say and do like Jesus would think and say and do. Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you've got to deny yourself. And you've got to take up your cross. And you've got to follow me. Reminds me of Tom Mauser. His 15-year-old son Daniel was shot in the Columbine High School massacre. In months after losing Daniel, Tom began to speak out against gun violence. He's now been touring the country sharing his story and his talk. And it's interesting, every time Tom speaks, he wears a pair of Reebok tennis shoes. Every time he goes to a speaking engagement, he wears a, pair, a specific pair of Reebok tennis shoes. They were Daniel's shoes. They were his son's shoes. Tom is literally following in his son's footsteps. Jesus says, if you want to follow me, deny yourself. Submit yourself to me. And then lace on my sandals. And follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Now, I want you to understand this. Life, life is like a slab of meat. There it is right there. That, that's your life, okay? That's your life. Life is like a slab of meat. It is a perishable commodity. Now, you can hold on to your T-bone steak if you want. You can hold on to it. You can put it in your pocket. Ladies, you can take that slab of meat and you can put it in your purse. Guys, you can put it in your briefcase tomorrow and you can carry it around with you all day long. But here's the problem. If you try to hold on to it, it's going to spoil. The only way you can keep that piece of meat is to eat it. To let your body assimilate it. The only way you can keep it is if you eat it and let it live in you. And you live in it. You keep it by giving it away, by eating it. Life is also a perishable commodity. Your life is like that piece of meat. You try to hold on to it. You view your life as your exclusive possession. Something that you're to use as you please. And it will wither in your hands. It will rot. It will spoil. 
The only way to keep your life is to give it away. To let your life be assimilated into the will and life of Jesus Christ. Only then will you live forever if you live in Him. Verse 27 says, For the Son of Man will come in the glory of His Father with His angels, and then He will reward each according to His works. Surely I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. This is an astounding statement. That there were people right there listening to Jesus who would see the Son of Man coming in His glory. Now that's an event still future, isn't it? Some people think that Jesus was saying that there would be people there that would live to, to the rapture. But we actually see what Jesus meant by this statement in chapter 17. Because there were three men in the crowd that day who would see the Son of Man in all of His glory at the transfiguration in the next chapter. Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, His brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and He was transfigured before them. Remember, Caesarea Philippi was at the base of Mount Hermon. Jesus takes His disciples to the mountaintop. It was probably a six-day climb to ascend the 9,200 feet up the mountain. Once on one of our trips to Israel, I talked our guide into driving to the top of Mount Hermon. I believe you were with me, Carrie. Do you remember that? I'll never forget it. Apart from a military installation up there, there was a, there was a military base up there. There was nothing up there. It was just kind of this eerie calm on the top of Mount Hermon. It, it, there was no monastery, there were no archaeological digs, there was no shrines. It was only a barren peak, but there was this surreal, kind of mystical feeling. I'll never forget it. It was as, as if we were standing on holy ground. Well, on that day, Jesus and his three disciples, when they ascended to the peak of Mount Hermon, they were standing on holy ground. For these disciples were treated to an amazing and astonishing sight. Jesus was transfigured before his disciples. Our word metamorphosis is derived from the Greek word translated transfigured. And it describes a change that occurs from the inside out. When a caterpillar becomes a butterfly, it's a metamorphosis. Suddenly, the veil of Jesus' humanity is peeled back. And his supernatural glory is allowed to radiate and shine and pulsate through his mortal body. The brilliance of his godhood now burns through his manhood. Notice what we're told. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as the light. You remember when Moses went up on top of the mountain and he saw God's glory? We're told that his face glowed. He kind of had the divine shine. But the shine eventually wore off for it was a reflected glory. Here, Jesus is not reflecting glory. Jesus is radiating glory. It's coming from within Him, not from without. It's not something He's just picking up from outside. He is God. He possesses this glory. It's burning from within His nature. You know, during His first visit to earth, Jesus' glory was not always apparent to the people around Him. I mean, as a newborn baby covered in fluids and blood, it was hard to see that He was God. As a sweat-drenched carpenter with sawdust in his hair and splinters in his hands. Even as a backwoods preacher from Nazareth, he didn't look real glorious. There was nothing about Jesus' appearance or exterior that had tipped them off to his divinity. 
until we come to Matthew 17. For a moment, the glory that Jesus possessed and will possess for all eternity was placed on display for these three disciples to see. His humanity gets peeled away and His glory shines brightly. Verse 3, And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them talking with Him. Now, this was not a reincarnation. This was a reappearance of Moses and Elijah. Moses represented the law. Elijah represented the prophets. Remember, Moses was the founder of Judaism. Elijah was the protector of Judaism from the idolatry of the evil Ahab and Jezebel. Moses and Elijah appeared to show that the glory of Jesus was greater than even the law or the prophets. That the preeminence belonged to Jesus. And it's interesting. Luke chapter 9 verse 31 tells us what Jesus and Moses and Elijah were talking about. Any guesses? They spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. It was a crucifixion chat room. I mean, they were talking about the ultimate sacrifice, about his crucifixion. And I'm sure that Jesus was hoping that his disciples would have eavesdropped, that they would have caught on. But instead, Peter's next comments indicate that the conversation just flew right over his head. For then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. The Feast of Tabernacles was coming up on the calendar. And during the feast, Jewish families would live outside in their backyards in these little thatched tents and they would sleep out under the stars. And it could be that Peter wanted to celebrate the feast there on the mountaintop. Verse 5. While he was still speaking, behold... A bright cloud overshadowed them. And suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear Him. It's as if God is saying to Peter, Do you know who you're dealing with here? Do you know who this man is? And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and they were greatly afraid. God in heaven interrupts Peter's wild ramblings. There is a time to talk, and there is a time to hush and listen. And this was a time to listen, not talk. You know, it had been 600 years since the time of the prophet Ezekiel that the Shekinah glory had shone in Israel. Now suddenly, this glory cloud returns, and the Father speaks. Peter needs to listen. And notice the Father's instructions concerning Jesus. Hear Him. Peter didn't want to hear about Jesus' suffering and sacrifice and crucifixion. That was the problem. He preferred to savor the mountaintop experience, to bask in the glory. Peter, James, and John didn't understand that they were given this experience, not as an end in itself, but as a preparation for the road that lay ahead. Hey, when God gives us glimpses of glory, it's sometimes to prepare us for suffering and sacrifice. Hebrews 12 says of Jesus, For the joy that was set before Him, He endured the cross. You know, it's easier to endure the sacrifice once you've been enlightened by the glory. Verse 7, But Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise and do not be afraid. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. At the Father's voice, they fell on their face. At the voice of Jesus, He lifted them to their feet. We need both voices, don't we? The voice of greatness 
and the voice of grace. Now as they came down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. This was a vision that none of the three disciples who had experienced it would ever, ever forget. In 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter recalls this experience and he gives testimony to it. Even at the end of his life, this experience was still vivid to Peter. Verse 10, And his disciples asked him, saying, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must first come? Now Malachi 4 verse 5 had predicted that Elijah would appear before Jesus' second coming. And the Jews expected Elijah before their Messiah. But Jesus answered and said to them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. In other words, Jesus doesn't deny Malachi's prophecy. But he goes on, But I say to you that Elijah has already come. And they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. And then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. Now, John was not literally Elijah. But John, we're told, came in the spirit and power of Elijah. Here's a way to think about it. John was not the Elijah. John was just a Elijah. You see, here was the problem. The Jews didn't grasp the dual comings of Christ. You know, they just saw one coming. They, they didn't understand he'd come a first time as a man, as a suffering servant. He would come the second time as the king of glory. They didn't have that nuance. They didn't understand that. They just assumed that he was coming, and when he came, Elijah would precede him. Well, well Jesus understood that's how they thought. And so Jesus says, Elijah has come. But not the Elijah, a Elijah. John came in the spirit and power of Elijah. John was the Elijah that had already come. But the Jews had rejected him as they will Jesus. The real Elijah will come before his second coming. Verse 14. When they had come to the multitude, a man came to him, kneeling down to him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and suffers severely, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. The Greek word translated epileptic is unfortunate. The old King James is more accurate, though less politically correct. It reads lunatic. You know, my son's a lunatic. The word literally means moonstruck. In Eastern culture, there was a superstition that if you slept outside on a, on a, a bright night and the moonlight actually shined on your face, it could drive you nuts and turn you crazy. Thus the phrase lunar tick literally means struck by the moon of course the boy in question was not moonstruck he was demon struck the desperate father says in verse 16 so i brought him to your disciples but they could not cure him sadly the disciples were powerless over the demon but then jesus answered and said "O faithless and perverse generation how long shall i be with you how long Shall I bear with you? Bring him here to me. Author Kent Hughes, he writes this. These are fitting words for the church today, which is so well equipped, rich, and instructed, and yet so often powerless. We cannot and dare not duck the master's diagnosis. Are we a faithless and perverse generation? Jesus has power over Satan. Do we have faith? 
And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him. And the child was cured from that very hour. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast him out? And so Jesus said to them, Because of your unbelief. For assuredly I say to you, If you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Guys, simple faith can alter landscapes. Both topographical and social landscapes as well. Through faith, we can mow down mountains. Nothing is impossible for people with faith. Notice the contrast in our passage. Faith as a little bitty grain of mustard seed. Problems like huge mountains. You see, so often we make the mistake of thinking that our faith has to be equal to our foe. Not so. It's not our faith that moves mountains. It's the hand of God. You don't need faith enough to move mountains. You just need faith enough to move the hand of God. And the hand of God will move the mountain. And God is so willing to work on our behalf. He loves us so much. He's so eager to do the miraculous in our lives. That faith to move the hand of God is not much. It's not a big faith at all. It's just the faith the size of a little mustard seed. That'll move the hand of God. And the hand of God will move the mountains in your life. Then Jesus adds in verse 21. However, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. You see, the disciples had cast out demons before. But apparently not all demons are equally determined. And when faced with a stubborn demon, we need an extra dose of spiritual strength. Prayer and fasting fortifies our faith. Fasting detaches me from the flesh. Prayer attaches me to God. That's a good combination. And Jesus is saying that you can't take on a determined demon unless you've been working out spiritually through prayer and fasting. That's what prepares you for the real heavyweights. Now while they were staying in Galilee... Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill Him. And the third day He will be raised up. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. Again, what's He teaching them? He's focusing on where He's going. They they understand His identity, but now He wants them to try to understand and grasp and be prepared for His destiny. And if they're going to follow him, they have to share that same destiny. They have to be willing to take up their cross as well. Tonight we end where we started. We know who Jesus is. But are we headed where Jesus is going? Will we deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow Jesus?